State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Hey, FitFam, welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with one of the really the pioneers in both the personal training and the strength and conditioning fields here in Canada, Sheldon Persad. Sheldon is the co-owner of Personal Best Health and Performance, and his clientele is extended to four continents. Sheldon is a certified coach in several different sports and also a certified stress and wellness consultant. He's been coaching for over 30 years, and his experience includes being the coach of athletes who have competed at World Championships, the Commonwealth Games, the Pan American Games, the Olympics, both summer and winter, from close to two dozen different national team programs. He is the co-founder of the Certified Professional Trainers Network, or CPTN, a co-founding director of the Canadian Strength and Conditioning Association. He's an author, an award-winning international presenter, he has twice hosted his own radio show segments, taught high-performance coaches at two local colleges, and spent the year leading up to the Rio Olympics as the Director of Sports Science and Sport Medicine at the Canadian Sport Institute in Ontario. Above all, Sheldon enjoys spending time with his wife and tries, like many of us, to stay in shape in an effort to keep up with his kids. Without any further ado, let's hop right into it. Welcome, Sheldon, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you, Adam? I'm doing, I'm doing very well. I'm excited for this conversation. I've been trying to get, um, you know, looking for the right person, I think is the best way to put it, to uh, speak about uh, training Olympic athletes. And um, you've had a lot of experience getting into um, developing or being a co kind of developer of the, the CPTN and getting into the Canadian Strength and Conditioning Association. So I want to chat about that. Uh, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But can you just give the listeners a little bit of an introduction into uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, again, name is Sheldon Persad. I would consider myself a coach first and foremost. Some of what I do as well is uh, I have been a personal trainer and still am. I have been a strength and conditioning coach. I still am. I have uh, taught at a couple of different colleges and uh, I've had the opportunity as well to be a facilitator within the national coaching certification program over the years. Awesome. And are you still involved in that? The uh, like developing certifications, are you still involved in that? 
With the CPTN, so the, the CPTN is it initially when we founded it was the Canadian Personal Trainers Network. Yeah. Uh, we eventually changed that to the Certified Professional Trainers Network. So the CPTN, we started that uh, over 25 years ago. And initially over the first 10 to 15 years, I was heavily involved in terms of, you know, creating the standards, creating the examination process, uh, selecting the practical assessors and, and teaching uh, not only the courses for the individuals who were taking the exam, but also the assessors. Uh, the five, the 10 years prior to, um, after that, I've spent less time. So what I'll typically do is I'll still uh, speak at the conferences either every second year or every third year. So for example, we had the 25th anniversary in 2018. Nice. Uh, and had a chance to be back there to, to give the keynote address to everybody, which was amazing to see that that organization come, you know, 25 years past <laughs> when we began. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, over the last uh, few years, I've had less involvement uh, and actually no involvement in the day-to-day -day operations. Okay. And so what was it like when you, if, if you go back to, because the fitness industry is pretty young, right? It's a, it's a relatively young industry. When you look at when, um, you know, CPTN, when Campit Pro, even when like big box gyms started in Canada with regards to, you know, Good Life probably being one of the first, uh, there's been a lot of research over these past several years. So what was it, what was it like back then when you were first starting to develop the, the programs, as you said, the standards, the examinations, what was it like then when you were coming up with all that? And how, what was that process like walking through the development? Well, we started uh, with an information session or, or more of a, uh, it wasn't a workshop, it was a little bit of a lecture series and two or three of us actually spoke in terms of the state of the industry and what things were looking like, uh, you know, within Canada in terms of providing you know, personal training services. And there was a dearth in terms of uh, education. There was a, a dearth in terms of, of um, uh, connection and actually, you know, a unified agreed upon level of standards that would uh, enable people to competently become personal trainers. So that's where we started with that initial sort of info session. And out of that, uh, Susan Lee, who is a phenomenal individual, approached uh, Lucinda Christian at the time, her name is Lucinda Jensen now, and myself, to start working on this association with the end goal of not necessarily certification, but the end goal was to try and help to educate personal trainers. And then we went down the road of certification as a means to an end to you know, help with the education process. But again, at the center, at the focal point, it is about education and education, you know, educating personal trainers across Canada. Yeah, and that's a lot of what, um, like the company that I uh, started what I do. I used to work at CanFit Pro when we were redoing the personal training certification there. And then I kind of broke out on my own. And I obviously teach at Centennial, taught at Laurier for a couple of years. And so I just started developing education, specifically in that realm of, uh, you know, the, the individual who comes out of rehab into a personal training space and what a trainer can then do to help that person coordinating with personal train, uh, sorry, a physiotherapist, occupational therapists, um, uh, even osteopaths, chiros, massage therapists to try to get the best out of that client without kind of stepping on feet or without making them worse. Uh, because there isn't a lot in a lot of the personal training certifications on things like that. And so it's been a, 
uh, what we found really, really useful for a lot of trainers in there. Um, now you mentioned unity as kind of being kind of one of those big pieces that you were looking at is that there was um, maybe different camps all over the place. I know that every province had their own kind of certifying agency that was kind of over, uh, like looking over everything. They were kind of in control of what was going on. They, uh, a lot of them had, still have their own certifications. And so what did you do in order to kind of connect all those different, um, I guess, stakeholders in the fitness industry within Canada at that time? We did travel uh, across the country. We also approached individuals at different institutions out east and out west uh, to try and bring on board people who are already educators in the field to uh, you know, approach them about becoming practical assessors and then approach them about you know, becoming course conductors. And I will admit that the, the CPTN is still very Ontario-centric. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, it's, it's not necessarily looking at the specific certification. I will absolutely promote the CPTN and I have a bias and I admitted biased in terms of helping to develop it. I think it's much more an issue and a, and a challenge of the continuing education that goes on beyond the certification. Yeah. So the one thing that, you know, very adamant about and, and, and happy to always promote too is, is the annual conference. Yeah. So having the annual conference, which was virtual, very much like all of our conferences are now over the last four months and, you know, foreseeable future, but to be able to have that outlet in terms of the education and the continuing the education is critical. Yeah. And so um, when did that happen? When was that conference? Uh, it was just this past spring. Okay, nice. And you said, uh, is it always virtual? First time. First time? Yeah, it was the first time. Yeah. And then where do you guys typically hold that conference? In Toronto. In Toronto. Awesome. Yeah. So um, we'll try to link to that at the end when we uh, kind of go over some ways that people can stay in contact with you and get some more education. Cause I think that's truly valuable is going to conferences. I still go to conferences um, all over North America, perform better in the States a lot. Um, I'm often here cause I live in Toronto. I'm often here at uh, you know, camp at pro and that kind of thing. So I'm always in different areas looking for that. So I have a question that's kind of a little bit, um, it wasn't in our topic guide, but I just want to see your, your thoughts on it. Uh, the fitness industry within Canada and even the U S it isn't something that is regulated. So it's not something that has a, like one overseeing governing body. It doesn't have a standardized test that people need to take. Um, and I always kind of look at uh, a place like Australia, which has done really, really well and has been really successful with something like that. Do you think one, that that is something that um, is in the future of the fitness industry within Canada, US, North America? Um, and do you see it as something that um, is necessary for us? So your first question, I don't see it in the near future, foreseeable future, simply because of provincial, I mean, distinction between provincial needs and guidelines and federal needs and guidelines. And, and if you're looking at an accreditation or an organization that is uh, either accredited or it's, you know, not unlike the massage therapy, they're all provincial. So yeah. I see that as a possibility. I don't necessarily see one universal coast to coast national. Okay. Um, you know, and in terms of your second question, I think it's, it is because of the territorial natures that uh, each province does have specific needs. 
So again, that would probably be the reason why. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, all right, so let's kind of get into a little bit about um, what you've seen. So since the beginning of your time, you've been a, a coach, trainer, strength and conditioning specialist since uh, for about 30 years or so, I believe you mentioned. So what have you seen as the biggest changes from then until now uh, in the industry itself? When my business partner and I, so my business partner, Barry Shepley, phenomenal individual, uh, great friend. We've, we've been into, you know, together in business for 30 years. So when we first started our company, the inclination, we were faxing our training programs. And that's the way we remotely coached with individuals. Yeah. So I would say the biggest change over the last 30 years is certainly being technology. You know, and, and I would say that when we got started, the preeminent wearable technology was the heart rate monitor. Yeah. And, you know, in turn, you know, if we look at the URSA report, even just two or three years ago, um, wearable technology was, you know, one either first or second biggest trend. And we've seen the growth, the expansion, the evolution of technology and specifically wearable technology has been unbelievable over the last 30 years. So I would say it is technology for sure. That's yeah. uh, been the biggest change. Yeah. And um, I've, I've had a few guests on the podcast state that as well, that, that they've seen just a drastic increase in not only what they've seen kind of come out with regards to wearable technology, but also the application of it, if it's done properly. And it's some of the things that we are talking about, we are discussing, we're a little, a couple of years away with kind of being able to do things, but, um, uh, and there's some privacy stuff with it, but being able to get that in can be hugely valuable. So how have you used technology in your, um, in your job right now with what you do? How have you been using or leveraging technology? Yeah, again, so I, I mentioned that we started using fax machines and we still, a staple of our business is remote coaching support. So we've switched out. I mean, what we do is still the same. The tools we use are different. Mm -hmm. So we now use an online platform and there are dozens of online platforms to be able to coach and, and track and monitor the athletes that we're working with. So uh, we are still doing very much the same thing. It's just a matter of doing it with a different tool. And with regards to, because you've had a lot of experience working with Olympic athletes, right? So um, what has been your experience? What's been kind of the, the biggest lessons that you've learned while working with athletes, like Olympic athletes, the highest level in each of their fields? Um, what are the, kind of the, some of the biggest things that you've learned from working with them? I'm, I'm extremely fortunate in terms of the work I do uh, within high performance sport. Yes, I am working with you know, national team athletes and Olympians and the work I do with my company, you know, one of our, our divisions is within the corporate world. So I, I've, I've, I've had the, the honor of working with not only Olympians, but also um, Olympic class executives. Oh. And I would say, I mean, they typically are, are the same. I mean, they're people, but their objectives, uh, you know, objectives and goals are clear. 
-hmm. So they have a clear understanding of what success looks like. I mean, it's easy at an Olympic games, you either finish first or you don't, that there's a very quantifiable measure, but it's similar in terms of the executives that, that I work with. They, they have a very clear understanding uh, of what success looks like. And they're all extremely highly driven people, mm -hmm. uh, but, 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 but they're people. So again, uh, you know, it's, it's about setting your objectives, it's setting your goals, it's creating the roadmap uh, to, to help achieve or, or attain those goals. So again, I think one of the, the massive distinctions, whether it's the Olympic athlete or the, the corporate uh, executive, is they're very driven. Yeah. I've worked with a few uh, professional athletes in some of the big sports, so NHL, NFL, um, some uh, European soccer athletes. And it's been interesting because like, as I've progressed through, uh, I originally wanted to go and become a, a physio or a chiro working in a clinic. And because I just loved the rehab aspect of, of training. But then when I got into the clinic, I realized I'm like, mm, a lot of these people at the kind of the general population, a lot of them actually don't want to get better or aren't willing to put in the work to get better. So I'm like, well, maybe I'll go athlete. So I went to the opposite end of the spectrum to high level athletes. And it was actually very interesting to me. There were certain athletes, as you said, in these sports. Now I haven't trained Olympic athletes. So this is where I'm going to ask for your kind of uh, your expertise. But there were certain athletes that were really, they loved being in the gym. They loved being there, getting the result and doing that. But then there was others who are so highly skilled. They're like, you know, I'm being paid X amount of money and um, I don't want to be here. I'm here because I kind of have to, because, you know, my team, my trainers, my rehab staff told me I had to be in the gym. So that's then why I'm here. And so you see this very differing level. But then you look at something like uh, an Olympic athlete who uh, doesn't necessarily make, you know, X million dollars per year. Their games are every four years. And then they have, you know, the, the world championships and that kind of stuff in between. But what's the, like, have you had that same experience with other professional athletes outside of the Olympics? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, I have. Uh, and again, I would say the distinctions are most of the Olympic athletes that I've worked with have to peak two, maybe three times a year. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I, I have a, quite, I have a experience in coaching rugby, for example, and, and rugby athletes, you know, whether it's provincial nationals, and in some cases, they actually have to peak every weekend. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a massive distinction in terms of creating their yearly training plans and their programs with focus. So um, another example would be triathlon. I think triathlon is a really good example of a sport that touches everybody at every level, uh, at every age, all genders, all physical abilities. And when you look at a triathlon race, you could have a world champion or an Olympian uh, competing on the same course on the same day as the you know 50-year-old uh, mom or dad or even a 60-year-old uh, world champion. So I think triathlon is one of those great examples where you touch every end of the spectrum within sport and, and also the sort of level of athlete that you're working with. Yeah. So when it comes to motivation then, so a lot of, uh, you know, most Olympic athletes, or as you said, the co corporate executives are very 
uh, internally driven. They're very self-motivating people. They, as you said, they know what success looks like. And so they're consistently driving towards that. Um, there's always lulls, even in that kind of mindset, there's always ups and downs. There's days that you don't really feel like it. There's days that feel really good. How do you, um, really work, uh, because you also work virtually as well. So you can touch on that as well, but how do you work to maintain a motivation over several, several years with ups and downs with the clients that you work with? I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that everybody is going to have ups and downs and not to, not to focus or fixate on the areas where you, you know, you're going through down periods. And I think it's, it's critical to actually map out what a year looks like, understanding that the year is going to change based on needs, based on kids, based on work, based on family commitments. But if you have that mapped out, so for example, if I'm working with a, a university or a rugby player, you know, when are your exams? You know, it's unrealistic for us to expect to go through a loading phase during your exam. So that's going to be your unloading phase. You're going to work out less frequent. But I think it's it, it starts with having a plan, yeah. but then being able to pivot and modify and being nimble and flexible to, to modify the plan. I think one, one critical component is actually being able to monitor the adaptations of the training that's occurring. So a few things that I'm fairly adamant about people tracking that I work with are, you know, their quality of sleep, their morning resting heart rate, their mood, how they're feeling. Uh, I think having at least one or two physiological metrics, you know, yeah. whether it's resting heart rate or heart rate variability, and one or two psychological metrics are absolutely key in understanding when you need to take the downtimes, you know, and if, if things are going askew or astray, being able to pivot immediately based on that. So and it's not only creating the programs and modifying those programs, it's, it's about, uh, you know, being able to monitor the adaptations to the training under the programs. So with that, when, when you're looking at monitoring, I'm assuming this isn't just with high level athletes, this is with most of the clients that you work with, you're trying to monitor um, both the psychological and physiological, um, you know, aspects of, you know, sleep and heart rate variability, as you mentioned how do you, do you rely on them to track all of that and then let you know what it is? Uh, do they have a, you know, a sheet every week that they fill out and send to you? How do you, how do you help them monitor that? It is, the onus is upon the individual and it's an agreement uh, or an understanding that we have at the outset of beginning the coaching, you know, coaching relationship. Mm -hmm. The amount of wearable technology now that is available does absolutely make it a lot easier than it, you know, it was 30 years ago. So quite honestly, 30 years ago, it was pen and paper. Uh, then it moved to Excel. Uh, now it's all wearable technology that is almost uh, uploaded immediately. So a lot of the athletes that I work with will either have a, a whoop strap or a Garmin that uploads information automatically. But still, the onus is upon the individual to track. Mm -hmm. So that, what's that whoop strap? I actually haven't heard of that one before. Again, it's a similar thing to uh, what a Fitbit would be, and it oh, okay. just gives you sort of measures, you know, like your heart rate variability, resting heart rate, things of that nature, hours of sleep, uh, you know, restful sleep, uh, you know, solid sleep. So it's, it's, again, it's a wearable technology. Yeah. And then so when, when adapting training to that, what are the specific indicators that you're looking for within, like, let's stick with physiological, we'll get the psychological in a bit, but with the, within the physiological um, things that you're tracking, what are you, what are you really monitoring for? And then how do you modify the program, their program for that in response to what you're seeing? 
Yeah, we're going to get down into the weeds a little bit here. That's I like a it. really good question. So with, I'll, I'll, use, I'll use an athlete as an example. What I will do is we will calculate what normal looks like for that individual. And it might require several weeks or, or, or months. Now it has to be periods where there's um, you know, consistent steady training, no competitions, no sickness, no illness, stress has to be at a, a manageable level. So, you know, quote unquote, the normal state or the normal status. So then based on that, what I do with, with each of the metrics, and some people will keep track of two, maybe three metrics. Some people will keep track of seven, eight, nine metrics. What I'll do is I'll look at their Z scores or I'll look at you know, what the standard deviation is of each one of those metrics. And if it falls outside of what's expected, then with the system that I'm using, it'll be, you know, we'll be able to red flag it or yellow flag it. Now, when there are multiple days of yellow flags, then it becomes red flag. But the point is, uh, we're addressing this well before we ever get red flag indication. So it really comes down to understanding the individual because, you know, everybody's range, their means, their standard deviations are going to be completely individualized with each of the metrics that you're taking. But that is necessary in order to compare during stressful periods or stressful times. And then um, with regards to the training itself, what will you then, um, you know, is it simply when they're in the yellow, you kind of dial back training a little bit, maybe add a couple extra rest days in there. Um, or, you know, when it's a red flag, are you kind of getting, okay, we got, we got to have some recovery days in here for the next few days to kind of bring things back down. Like what, what kind of things are you doing to help manage that? Yeah, again, it depends on the individual. For example, being in a yellow zone might be expected based on the annual plan that we've created, and it's a loading phase. So, you know, you have the conversation with the athlete prior to that you are going to be tired next week. You know, these numbers are going to be higher. This is expected, okay? If it's unexpected, and it's unexpected for one, two, three, usually if it's one day, I'll reach out and say, hey, what's up? You okay? You know, and then, you know, it might be, I'll give you a perfect example. So uh, two weeks ago, one of the athletes that I work with, uh, and I've been, I've been coaching, I used to coach her brother, who was an Olympian, two-time Olympian, and I'm coaching her now. And uh, for about eight years, she had a mouse in her room and her sleep quality was off. So I contacted her, you know, the next day, what's up, you know, your sleep quality is a little off. And she explained to me, you know, she, a mouse, she had a heart attack because her mouse, a mouse woke her up. So in that case, there's no need to modify training. But I think it's just a matter of being on top of things and not waiting for things to cascade. I mean, the only value in monitoring and using monitoring data is if it's actually, um, that there is a, a temporal or a time component involved. You can't look at these things a week or two later and try and do a retrospective analysis. You simply just need to be on top of it. So I think just having the ability to recognize, hey, what's up? Oh, okay. Okay. Did you catch the mouse? She did. She caught the mouse. You just set a trap, caught it the next day, and she slept peacefully yeah. after that. So I think it's just a matter of being on top of things. And what program do you use uh, for tracking all of that? Because you said it goes directly in, and then you can see the flags almost right away. Um, what program do you use for that? Been using my business partner and I have been using Training Peaks for about okay. 15 years. Okay. And then you you find that's the best one that you've you've used 
the majority of the athletes that we work with as a company are triathletes, marathoners, endurance athletes. So I would say Training Peaks is a really good program if you are working with a lot of endurance athletes. Okay. Yeah, because I'm trying to think about, because um, obviously tracking that stuff is really important. It's something that isn't done all that well with the general population in the regular gym. Most, um, you know, most people aren't doing that, but I, I want see what you think about this. So I was having a conversation with a, a good friend of mine, Michael Kuniko, who's from Australia. He's the, like the head of fitness first uh, for PT in, in Australia. And, um, you know, he was talking about, you know, developing things and saying, hey, you know, if you're going to put out, you're going to sell a program, like a, a personalized program for an individual, you know, tack on, you know, the 100, 200, 300 bucks it's going to cost to get them a Garmin or get them, you know, a Fitbit or something like that so that they can start tracking that. So you have those numbers and just tack it like you give it to them. And it's almost like it's a gift because they've already paid for it. They maybe didn't know that that was part of the price already, but then giving that to them. Um, do you rely on your athletes to have those or do you do something like that? I do, but I leave that up to them. So there are, uh, you know, a dozen, over a dozen of different types of tools that you can use. Uh, all of which, you know, and I, I, there is a list. So Training Peaks, for example, does have on their website the wearable technology that interfaces smoothly with their product. So that's what I would absolutely recommend. Awesome. So can you walk me through um, your, the, the current business that you have? So PB Health and Performance, uh, as you said, you're, you're co-owner of that. Um, where did that come from? How long have you been working in that uh, kind of realm? And what do you, um, is it only athletes and, and corporate or do you work with just about everybody in that? Yeah, we work with anybody who's willing to work with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So again, Barry and I, uh, Barry, Barry Shepley is, is he's actually the, um, he was the triathlon, the Olympic triathlon coach in 2000. And as being a national team coach for years, I mean, if you're looking at uh, at triathlon coaching and and sort of knowledge and, and evolution, there Barry's the guy to speak to for mm -hmm. sure. So we met at university, and we uh, were both uh, at the time working with a different company that uh, was focused solely on the corporate end of things, and then Barry and I were the ones within that corporate world. Who were responsible for the testing of employees and doing the physical testing they decided not to do that anymore so barry and i were fired and sitting around you know struggling starving just finished university figuring out <laughs> what are we going to do so we figure out you know what the tail end of a recession so probably not the best time to start of a company but we decided to go on our own and and, and open our own company so what we also found out we knew is one of the corporate clients of this company that we worked with, their contract with our former employers was coming to an end. Mm. So they put out an RFP, a request for proposal to manage their corporate center. Uh, Barry and I put in a proposal and we actually won the contract and we had that uh, corporate client for you know 19 years, 20 years. Um, and that really started our corporate division. Uh, mm -hmm. which enabled to help subsidize our coaching division. Yeah. And again, the third division within our company is we actually run camps and events across uh, Canada, across the U.S. 
Um, and every two or three years, we'll take, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40, 70 people to uh, an Ironman triathlon. So the, the way our three divisions of our company work, they work really well together. And um, it all started with us, uh, you know, being fired. And, and we, we celebrate the day. It's October 15th. Yeah. We call it PB Liberation Day. Nice. <laughs> and we always, uh, you know, and I, I still have that termina termination letter because it was the best possible thing for, you know, giving Barry and I a kick in the pants to try and go on our own. And that was, yeah, uh, yeah that was 30 years ago uh, coming next year. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Starting in a recession is probably never the best idea when it comes to starting a new company, venturing out on your own. Um, but then again, if everybody else is in a recession, it might be the best time to, you know, take it slow, kind of build it up. And then when everything, everything comes out, you're, you're beyond that. Right. So um, I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, get into your um, experience working kind of this, as the director of sports science and sport medicine at the Canadian Sport Institute in Ontario. Um, and so what did that role, because that's a big, long title. What did your role there encompass? What were you responsible for? Sure. So again, that started in around 1999 as a strength and conditioning coach, as an external provider. And then over, I guess it was seven, six years ago, became a little more involved. It used to be called the National Sports Center Toronto. Then it changed to the Canadian Sports Center Ontario. And then just before the Pan Am Games, it changed to the Canadian Sport Institute. So the, the roles that I've been, and it's, it's an amazing place to be able to work with because there's some phenomenally smart people. And I, I like that. Always, I mean, I'm always hanging around with people way smarter with me than me, which is amazing because that's yeah. the way that I learn. But there are really some phenomenal people there, you know, from, from the CEO all the way down to, you know, every single practitioner. So the roles that I've, I've been privileged to fulfill at, at the CSIO is, is, is I have been a strength and conditioning coach. So I was the lead strength and conditioning coach as well. I was the manager of uh, performance services. I, I was the director of sports science and sports medicine. Uh, I was the lead of sports science overseeing physiology and biomechanics. And, and now most recently, I'm, I'm a senior advisor. So in mm. terms of, of the work that I do, I still have the opportunity to work and coach uh, some athletes, which is huge. But I also have the opportunity to, to mentor and, and be mentored um, by a, a number of individuals. So I think it's it's just a it's a wonderful place to be able to work, and it's a it's a wonderful place to be able to uh, be involved if you're interested in, in high performance sport within Canada. Yeah, and you uh, like I know um, I have a friend who who works there, and um, he, I think he's actually part of your advisory board for the uh, the CSCA, um, Ryan McDonald. So uh, our Mac, as we call him, yeah. So. Um, I know that you guys have some really cool tools there in the gym. Um, and like the one that, uh, that I saw was, it was a, basically an eccentric loading machine. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it was very, very interesting. So this was before, um, like this is a, a while ago. I can't remember how long ago it was when you guys got that, but that was kind of before I really got into understanding the, the role, the importance of, uh, eccentric loading and eccentric training for, um, 
for athletes, for performance, for uh, injury uh, rehabilitation, injury prevention. Um, what, what kind of things do you guys have there? Because I know everything when it comes to the Olympics is kind of getting that next, that little bit further, that, that one step further. So what kind of tools and tricks do you guys have, if you can actually tell me, at the, at the CSI that um, you guys utilize with your athletes? Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, Ryan McDonald is a perfect example of a guy who's way smarter than me. And I love <laughs> hanging around him for sure. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. And the work that he's done with uh, with beach volleyball is has been incredible over the last yeah. couple of years. So um, that tool that you're talking about uh, was the I am lifter. We actually have since sold it. Uh, so we don't have it on the floor anymore. But in terms of some of the things we have in the lab, um, you know, we have a, we do have a DEXA scanner. We, we do have, you know, three metabolic carts and doing a lot of uh, uh, physiological testing in terms of VO2 max and step tests. Um, you know, force plates are something that we're integrating more and more often and, and more on a regular basis and not necessarily just for testing, mm -hmm. um, but even looking and using, you know, utilizing that as a, as a readiness tool and Ryan has been actually phenomenal. Um, you know, we do have, uh, you know, velocity-based uh, tools that we're using as well. Uh, but let, let me say that the, the, the tools should not be the focal point. Mm -hmm. you know, being Coaching needs to be the focal point and how we interact and how we work with the athletes, um, you know, regardless of the tools, has to still be the focus. Yeah. And um, when it comes to because um, you mentioned uh, mentioned force plates, so just for those who maybe don't know how you would utilize that in an actual training program, uh, can you just explain to the audience like how you guys utilize that to track whether it be um, you know differences in pushing a little bit more, maybe in a squat with the right leg versus the left, those types of things. How do you guys use those in your yeah, training? So there are a number of things that you can use uh, it for. So you can look at uh, vertical jump. You know, whether you're doing a squat jump or a counter movement jump, you can look at the rate of force development. You can look at, uh, at light time. So again, there are a number of different things. And I think it depends on, you know, and here's, here's why tools can't be the focal point. It depends on what the objectives are of the coach in being able to utilize the program. So, uh, you know, one of the sports that uh, works at the, at the Institute is, is, uh, is diving and it's not necessarily having a higher vertical that they're interested in, you know, looking at the force plate, but their coach is interested in more so than a higher vertical is actually looking at how quickly they rotate. So mm -hmm. in that case, you know, you might use um, IMU or, or, you know, vertical displacement units to be able to look at that. So there are a number of different uses for force plates. And I think it really depends on what the objective is of the program and what the objectives of the coach and the goals of the program. Yeah. And then, so how do you see the difference between um, programming for a Olympic athlete, other than just the length of <laughs> the periodization that you have to do with them? But how is the programming different for like an Olympic athlete versus, you know, one of your uh, corporate execs or the general population? Not a lot of differences. Uh, to, to be quite honest, uh, you, we still have the planning session. We'll still look at creating the annual program. We'll still look at you know, the modifications that need to take place based on, uh, you know, life that, uh, that occurs. So to, to be quite honest, there's not a lot of difference. The processes uh, that I'll use and that are in place are very much identical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, 
I'm glad that you said that because there's a lot of um, new trainers, uh, even even experienced trainers who um, train people very, very differently. Like think that the the training a high level athlete is so much different than training a uh, you know somebody who's in general population wants to maybe put on a little bit of muscle mass. Right, that's their goal. The goal is kind of aesthetics, and um, I agree. There, there are some slight differences, but you're still looking at all the same, you know, kind of metrics. You're still looking at kind of the stresses that the person is being put under, both, as you mentioned, psychologically and physiologically, trying to get kind of the bigger picture. And um, they're both trying to achieve a goal. The goals are just different. And then the programming then reflects the goal. Um, so can we go through a little bit about um i want to discuss a little bit about how you help your olympic athletes peak because as you mentioned rugby olympic athletes very very different in how they uh what they need to prepare for you know a, a olympic athlete is you know three four times a year maybe they have to peak and then you have and then continue building for that fourth year where they've got the actual olympic games themselves and then you've got uh, somebody who's maybe a, a rugby player who, as you mentioned, has to maybe peak every week, maybe twice a week if they're playing a couple games a week. Um, how do you go about assisting those two very, very different clients in peaking for those specific events? It uh, starts with the conversation with the coach in terms of prioritization. And we do have trials and training camps that will lead into the competitions in terms of what we need to do for, for their peaking and their tapering. And it, it, to, be, to be quite honest, Adam, it's extremely individually based, um, based on the individuals. And, and I mean, some athletes will need to have a, a, a slow decay taper. Some, some athletes might need to have a, a slightly faster. I think it also depends on what sport they're involved with. So, I know typically an endurance athlete that I'm working with will have a, a longer taper than a, you know, a, an anaerobic uh, power athlete. So uh, very individualized for sure. Mm -hmm. And then how do you manage that, um, you know, those tapers, the, the deload phases with, with different athletes? How do you organize those um, outside of having, you know, maybe a yellow flag or a red flag? How do you do that in the actual training program? You know, whether it's a rugby athlete from season to season, you know, in season to off season, or with a Olympic athlete after a uh, trial. Well, again, you need to be able to track in, you know, training load and how the training load both within their sport and off, you know, off the playground essentially in the DTE is impacting them, affecting them. So again, that that has to happen by looking at the monitoring data it has to happen with with data and analysis of that data so it can't it can't be a guessing work uh in terms of the load so again the one thing that we'll we'll do for sure is we are you know tracking what loads they're undergoing mm -hmm. and do you track um i'm assuming you track your in-game or in competition um metrics as well to see how much stress they're going in or going through so you know if you've got a rugby athlete who um you know with regards to the distance that they've ran the do you track all of that as well for those athletes again yeah for some we do for sure for 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 some sports no so you know chris robertson who is working he's the snc coach with with rugby 
uh, does a phenomenal job of that. But again, there's been an evolution over you know the last three years and being able to get to the point of you know, and I think of somebody like Adam Douglas with Hockey Canada who does a phenomenal job with with tracking um, some of that volume, and it's because of the wearable technology that he has access to and he's able to utilize. Awesome. So how has um, this pandemic influenced the training of the athletes that you work, um, the Olympic athletes that you work with? Very fortunate in that we already, again, my business partner and I, and, and we've already had in place the tools to be able to coach remotely. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I can think, so two of the athletes, for example, that I work with, one moved immediately to Finland, another one moved immediately to Barbados, but, you know, they, they typically travel around the world in normal circumstances. So uh, again, for the majority of the individuals that I work with, uh, it has not impacted it greatly. Uh, in terms of the DTE and getting into the facility, again, we were able to provide um, online support, you know, being able to utilize, I mean, uh, you, I'm sure as well, have had an, an exponential increase in the amount of Zoom meetings that you've had. So being able to use these tools have, have enhanced it. But, but fortunately, in, in, in my circumstances, in my situation, we, it was, you know, remote coaching and remote support is already something that we had in place. Yeah. How often do you communicate with your clients and your athletes? Is it daily? Is it, I'm, I'm assuming it's every week, but is it this daily thing that you're constantly checking in with them? Or is it only if there's kind of something coming up? Some are daily, some are weekly, and some are monthly. Okay. So it depends on, uh, and, you know, that's type, you know, the types of conversations that we'll have at the outset in terms of the desired frequency and also the, the desired tool um, that we're going to be communicating with. So again, that's uh, similarly, and I do believe that that should also be individually, you know, sort of established based on what the needs are of the individuals that you're working with. Mm -hmm. um, and so have you done any with, like, so you mentioned that you were already set up for a lot of online, a lot of virtual training, being able to do that because your company was already doing a lot of that already. And uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the athletes travel around um, in the year anyways. Have you had any instances where you've had to do um, some problem solving with regards to um, either getting different tools or tools that they maybe didn't have in the location where they were that you had to kind of adapt? Because uh, I know people who were trying to get equipment who couldn't get equipment and uh, there's a big shortage of that. Just seeing if you guys had to do anything like that. Absolutely. And I, and I, I credit the... Uh ingenuity of some of the athletes that I work with in creating, you know, some, some cables and pulleys with uh, cinder blocks and, and things of that nature. So <laughs> what, what I did, you know, in that particular case, I asked them to send, make sure to send me pictures and video to make sure that it's actually safe. <laughs> yeah. Foremost. Uh, but no, absolutely. That, that is certainly being part of it. And I mean, another athlete, uh, uh, you know, one of the things because not able to get into the gym where he was at was, you know, doing here's your here's your workout and your workout, your entire workout is uh, the focal point is the park bench at the <laughs> park. So you've got the park bench and you've got that chin up bar on the monkeys, yeah. uh, you know, the monkey set. So and that's your workout. So absolutely. But again, uh, a lot to do with the uh, the uh, ingenuity of the individual that I'm working with. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great thing about working with athletes who um, not only know their body really, really well, but also understand the, uh, I guess, the ideas behind how to create things out of nothing to get, um, you know, whatever they need out of it, right? Being able to do that. Because I know for, uh, for me, that's one of the things that I love as a trainer, a strength and conditioning coach, as a, as a guy working in clinics and rehab, being able to modify for me is like, it, it gets me giddy. Like it gets me some goosebumps when I'm like, oh, we got a problem solve like that. That to me, I love that. I love the problem solving side of things. Um, are you the same way? Maybe you don't well, get near as giddy. But, but again, and, and you know, that sort of hammers home a point that we talked about previously in terms of already having the monitoring pieces in place. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, you, so you're having an understanding, you're, you're, the volume is quite significantly lower the tool and the vehicle is different. So how is, you know, what's the adaptation in the next day or two, and then you'd be able to progress from there. So mm -hmm. again, it's so critical to have the monitoring tools in place. And um, I, I actually want to talk about that. So you mentioned um, the adaptation. So I love when, when people talk about tools and, or they're, they get married to a tool, right? So specifically like maybe not so much in, um, in, in something like training Olympic athletes, but when you go into, you know, a big box gym, you've got people that go to a course, you know, uh, maybe it's a TRX course or a kettlebell course. And then all of a sudden, everything that they do is a kettlebell or a TRX. And it's, they become married to not only one way of training, but specific tools as well as being the thing that gets the job done. And while I do like tools i see them i think as you do as just a way to get the adaptation that we're looking for it's not necessarily that a dumbbell kettlebell barbell is like you have to have one or the other but they're each while they each have positives and negatives for different adaptations that we're looking for um the adaptation is what we have to be evaluating, right? How is their body actually evaluate, um, sorry, how is their body actually adapting to the stresses that we're putting on it? And so in addition to the tracking that you already do, um, kind of the daily thing to find your flags, how are you tracking the adaptations that you're looking for? And then how do you modify a program? Um, or how often do I guess reevaluate a program based off of the adaptations that you were either seeing or not seeing? Yeah, so the evaluation of the program typically happens on a weekly basis. In some cases, if the athletes want the monthly touch points, then it'll happen on a monthly basis, and we'll evaluate what's happened. But the, again, it's, it's it's dependent upon the individual. But I also employ uh, a number of field tests. So if you, what's the tool that you have? So some of the athletes that I work with have an ERG, a running ERG. So, you know, what's your 1K or what's your 2K time for, for that particular uh, mode of activity? So again, um, you know, another athlete that I'm working with who's a boxer, uh, you know, she does a, a five minute skip test. So again, I think it depends on the individual as well and, and what, their, what their focus is, what their objectives are, what their goals are. Yeah, and so a lot of that is based off of the tool that the client has and then do you have preferences to tools that you would like a specific client to have available for testing or do you just work with whatever the client actually has available to them? Yeah, the, the latter. I, I, so it's a conversation in terms of what do you actually prefer? Because again, 
a few things involved in that. If it's something they have access to, is something they enjoy, then the compliance and utilization is actually going to be higher as well. Mm -hmm. And then do you see a big transfer when you look at, um, for, for example, um, you know, a rowing machine versus um, a bike versus um, skipping, as an example, um, where do you kind of come on the, the specificity of the tool that we're using and then it's transferability into the sport or the athletic event that that, that athlete um, is actually engaged in? Well, I'm a big fan and a big proponent of cross-training using, you know, multiple modes of activities as much as possible. And even the elite uh, marathoners that I've coached over the years, rarely will I have them run more than four times a week. You know, I can think of actually only two examples of, of marathoners that uh, have run more than four times a week. But, but in, in other cases, uh, I am actually getting them into a pool to do some running in the water, or they are getting in, you know, onto the bike to be able to utilize that as a mode to improve their central system, their central cardiovascular system. So I'm a huge proponent of being able to uh, cross-train. And, yeah. and that, that starts from, you know, my, my business partner and I've always had that philosophy, philosophy, and I think it really started because uh, of being able to work with triathletes. That was an you know, inherent part of that sport. Yeah, because they're doing three different activities in the actual sport itself, right? So um, can, you, can you just walk us through the, um, the neural and the kind of the central adaptations that occur when it comes to cross-training specifically for a, uh, an endurance athlete? Sure. I mean, your central system, so if we're looking, and I'm going to boil it down, sort of basics, so your central system, let's say heart and lungs are, are really um, dumb and don't know what mode of activity you're using. Your peripheral system, when you're talking about getting to your extremities and looking at, you know, things like capillarization at the muscle level or, you know, mitochondrial density, that your peripheral system more so knows what type of activity you're doing. So in terms of a general adaptation phase, a marathon runner can get some benefits from biking, improving a central system. However, in order to be a faster marathoner, you need to run, you need to do intervals, you need to do mile repeats, and that's focused more on your peripheral system. So I think having an understanding of balancing the two, yeah. um, and, and also looking at the you know, incidence of injuries, you know, when you're doing a needs analysis of a sport, you always need to look at the uh, incidence of injuries and sort of the, the percentages of where they occur and be able to prescribe your program based on that. So, I mean, if you're looking at triathlon research, depending on what paper you're looking at, you know, triathletes are typically dealing with chronic, you know, 75 to up to 90% of triathletes are actually competing while dealing with an injury yeah. uh, because of, of overload, because of doing too much training in one mode or one activity. So I mean, having the ability to cross train, having the ability to periodize that over time is absolutely critical. Yeah. And so um, when it comes to the, uh, the central and the peripheral systems, can you, um, is it the nervous system that we're looking at within the, the peripheral system, or are we still just looking at the cardiovascular system as no, knowing still, what you're doing? Yeah, you're still looking at your, your cardiovascular central and peripheral system. Your, I mean, your nervous system 
and your neuromuscular system is going to be is 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 again it's a different system. But when you are talking about um, being specific, yes, your neuromuscular system becomes more efficient in doing a movement or an activity the more you do it. So again, there is a learning. You know, you are creating those motor engrams. You are creating that. You know, rather than motor engrams, I'll say muscle memory. So you yeah. are creating that when you are going through training. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always fascinated with, because um, I completely agree, like, you know, with a lot of um, hockey players that I've worked with, very rarely do I actually have them, you know, skating and doing a lot of like cardio on the ice until we get closer to the actual season or the, the preseason. Um, so they're still on the ice once or twice a week, but they're, they're doing skating and they're practicing edging and they're, you know, working on their shot, those types of things. And then, you know, we're doing a lot of other kind of lower impact activities, such as, as you said, biking, uh, running in the water, those types of things, um, even just going for a hike or a jog through the woods, something like that, that there's constant changes. So when you go through a run through the woods on a trail, right, especially if you're in the mountains, if you're at West, you know, you're running and you're actually chopping almost side to side using the same kind of action, but your body has to respond now with the ankle. Um, so I, I, I've used that with a lot of athletes for a long time in order to, as I said, prevent that overload from them using, you know, cause they think, okay, I play hockey. I got to play hockey all year round, all the time, five days a week, go hard. Um, but for injury prevention, um, for overuse of all those tissues, right. Probably not the best idea in the world. Well, I mean, and you've just alluded to it without specifically saying it, just being able to have a, a mental, emotional break from <laughs> the grind of a, of a hockey season, too, and being able to get out on the trail is, is nice for the, uh, for, for sort of the psychological well-being as well. Yeah, yeah, which is a big piece of, of all training is that psychological component, right? Uh, so I actually think this is a, a great place to kind of finish part one and we will pick it up in part two. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.